0: to episode 55 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 21st of January 2019. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan, Evening, Graham, Hello, and Will. Hello. Did that in alphabetical order there, I think. Yes, we are back, and we've got some news to talk about, and uh, an argument between me and Phelan, by the looks of things. So I look forward to that one. Um, so let's start with something I think you put in, Phelim in the news. Um, a new sort of open-source, GitHub-type thing. Yeah, um, SRHT. I have no idea how he intends it to be pronounced.
1: Sir Hat, apparently, but that just <laughs> sounds silly. Um, and it's by Drew DeVault, who has just made an announcement that he's gone full-time open-source development with uh, all the people sponsoring him. And this is one of his big projects that he hopes to obviously make some money out of, but it's fully a GPL. project so
0: you can install it yourself if you want to. So it's sr.ht. Now, it might just be my aging eyes and my slight <laughs> dyslexia, but that doesn't half look like shit to me. <laughs> well, yeah. I,
1: did it, I did log an account. Uh, I didn't pay for it yet, but it didn't look shit. It did look quite nice and simple. I disagree. I logged in and it looked shit.
2: <laughs> it looked like that's a bit harsh it looked like it was um very firmly in development um the the feature list on the front page is certainly uh it's certainly very full featured you know it's got the the hooks into other systems it's got the build system it's got the issues and you know bugs and all of that stuff um but yeah i do think the name is going to is going to be the downfall of it and also the the lack of the um well, it was described in Linux Journal, I think, as uh, the lack of the social uh, view that you can't go in there um, and just sort of browse around and see what people are doing. So I, I don't know if they have plans to address that or if they're just going to be a place where, where people could stick their code for free and have all of these features. I'm sure it will build out more and more features as it goes. But uh, what's the who's, who's the target
0: user here? Well, isn't the lack of social bullshit a feature rather than a bug here? That it's not bloated like GitHub is. It's just very simplified and just doesn't have shit that you don't need. Or do you need all the social stuff? I don't know. I guess it depends, right? If if you want to go in there and look for a
2: specific project or you host your code in there, then yes, I agree. It would be much faster, much leaner. But if you're just sort of poking around for interesting projects um, related to something else, then that... That that sort of trail that GitHub gives you, where you can where it can lead you from project to project, I think is quite a useful feature. Yeah, I think one of his
1: features that he had said was the fact that it can scale so well. So it's yeah, as you say, it's lean, but uh, it also means that you can automate an awful lot. And it, he reckons it's one of the few projects that self-hosted could scale for a whole distro to use. So I don't know. I think I think a lot of the modern stuff ties in so much that half the time you spend it with the fail whale. Is that what it used to be called? I can't remember, but you, you don't put a project down or you get the, the stupid Jedi comes up on GitHub and it's, you know, yet another project has fallen on its arse and you're four hours waiting for it to come back up. If you can self-host your own stuff or pay for a service from a provider where, you know, they're not having to integrate with so many things that it's crippling the system that it would be nice to have something reliable and, you know, does one job and does it well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is this going to be the XFCE of development platforms? <laughs>
1: no, it's going to be good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't make me cry. It's good. XFCE, it's amazing. Well, it seems early days anyway, doesn't it? But it's, it's one to watch. And another one to watch is the Librem 5. How long have we been talking about this now? They've got a very good PR department who keeps pumping out these press releases and keeps them in the news so i'm almost reluctant to talk about them but there's kind of enough of that has now stacked up that i think it's worth talking about again they did an end of year update which essentially says um pure os is getting there we're nearly there it's it's we've got loads of stuff it's going to be great but i'm not that convinced
3: Nobody cares. <laughs> what what is it that I can add that hasn't been said before? Well, they have
0: also announced the Pure OS store. So do we care about that? Maybe. It's very early for them to announce it, isn't it? There's nothing in there. They haven't even made it yet, but they're already trying to drum up excitement about it. And I think it's more a case of them just saying that we haven't forgotten about the fact that you we're going to need applications once this phone launches. But it just seems premature to me. And they were supposed to be shipping this phone early this year. Mm. And we're already into the back half of January. And it just feels a very, very long way off still to me from this update and also this store that they've announced and haven't even built yet.
3: (laughs) Yeah. They've only had to write like 250 words about it and do a nice screenshot. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Not even a screenshot, probably just a (laughs) mock-up.
3: Yeah. I know that you're cynical and and I think you're right to be cynical about it um, I think the store's a nice idea I don't think there's any problem with them trying to find stuff to keep people engaged with the with what's happening um, but yeah sooner or later they're going to actually have to deliver something well they have
0: delivered the dev kits to
3: everyone who bought one um, including
0: friend of the show Jezra who has been posting about it on Google Plus and he is incredibly unimpressed by it the screen of the dev kit doesn't work at all, it seems, Mm. which is not a good sign. And uh, when they first shipped it, the HDMI output didn't work, so there was just no way to interact with it apart from over SSH, which is not very good. That's very worrying. It is very worrying, isn't it? And and have you seen the size of the thing as well?
3: Yeah. How are they going to shrink that down into a phone? I just can't imagine a project where they know that their first release of hardware is going to be under such scrutiny that they have to get the simple things dead right. I can't imagine, and this seems to happen time and time again with ambitious projects like this. They, they're they under pressure to push something, so they push something out, and in the end it's broken, and it's it's more often than not an indicator of the state of the project inside the team. Um, and that's very worrying. Regarding the size of the thing, these dev boards
2: would have been engineered to be easily put together and easily fixable. So they won't necessarily be using the exact same components or indeed the same board layout on the final device. This would be easier to you know, get under the hood and and tinker with and lay out and probably cheaper to build in that way as well. So I'm not too concerned about them resizing that board. If that's the size of the screen uh, on the, the picture that you link to, then, yeah, I
0: think they can trim that down if it works. Fair enough. Well, sort of related to this was a post on postmarketos.org where they were talking about 600 days of postmarket OS. And that is um, very much a community project. It's based on Alpine Linux. The idea is that it's um, 10 years of support for old hardware like the Nexus 5 and trying to get mainline kernels rather than using all the Android stack and everything. And one of their developers bought the dev kit and it's got Postmarket OS running on it with XFCE, which is excellent. But in the photo of that, you've got the the monitor in the background and the dev kit in the foreground. And he's had to sort of jerry-rig a fan above the CPU heatsink on it, which suggests to me that it must be running incredibly hot. Now, I don't know enough about this sort of thing to be properly qualified to comment, but that does not look like a good sign to me.
3: Well, it could be just as simple as they've not got the the, the patches necessary for the, the power and CPU management. But what would Purism have that Postmarket
0: OS don't have with Alpine? I wonder. Hmm. Given that this thing's supposed to be running completely free software, presumably if those drivers were available, then this person from Postmarket would have access to them. And yeah, but wasn't it the case for their laptop though that they? did release things, but just not immediately,
1: where they had to kind of go through a certain amount of review and process with some of the parts. Right, maybe. Well, let's give them benefit of the doubt anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think so.
2: Is that picture on the post-market website and the picture that Jezra posted, are they supposedly the same
0: device? Yes. Really? Hmm. They don't look like the same thing to me. I think what it is, right, is that Jezra's one is upside down, and that's the confusion there, it's just a different angle of the same thing.
2: In which case, mm. I take back everything I said. If, if behind the screen, or sorry, behind the board in jezra's picture is a heatsink, a, a whatever that is, battery, an Ethernet <laughs> port, about a dozen SD card slots, then yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. that is a problem.
1: <laughs> but you see, what it is it? Hovers beside you as you walk because it is a hundred and forty millimeter <laughs> fan, and it just
0: air ducts its way across the ground. Yeah, it's not going to be a problem at all when you're trying to make phone calls and you've just got, <laughs> It's actually just an ITX board, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. It's, um, yeah, it doesn't look good to me. I've been very skeptical all along about this, and it just seems the more that we learn about it, the more I feel vindicated in that skepticism. But, I don't know, Purism has pulled off some stuff before, which I thought they wouldn't do. So you never know. I
3: think it'll just take more time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Winpress said that they won't ship it this year at all. Yeah. And I'm starting to come around to him. I'll owe him a beer if that happens. I said they will ship it, but late this year. I mean, there's a long way to go before the end of the year. But it looks like they've got an awfully long way before they can ship something that's working even.
3: Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, let's move on to some happier news and that is that Phoenix have joined the Linux vendor firmware service. Yay! Your mate Hughes, has been posting about that again on his blog. This is good because uh, there are a lot of machines out there running uh, Phoenix BIOS. Mm. Um, A lot of the Linux laptops that you would buy uh, from vendors like Entraware and System76, they would have it. And to be able to update the firmware through the software centers, be it on Gnaim or KDE, or whatever, that's got to be good news. And it um, follows AMI joining the LVFS last year, and Hughie says that there's not that many more to go now, and that he's um, waiting on the last remaining huge OEM. So this is good news. I know it is proprietary software that is being delivered here, but I'd rather have updates to my BIOS that are proprietary than have no updates at all.
2: Yep. so AMI are obviously huge, and Phoenix are equally huge. I don't know which is the bigger of the two, but I would imagine that between AMI and Phoenix, that's, um, that's probably at least two-thirds of the market
1: wrapped up. Who is the third one, do you think?
2: Well, if we've got Dell, we've got Lenovo,
0: I'd say that third in the market is HP, so that would be my guess. Well, fingers crossed for HP, and fingers crossed that... Uh, the others will join and that they'll all open source it and we can all have a nice free software love in. Um, speaking of which, some more KDE bollocks from you, him as usual.
1: Well, it's the notification system for KDE itinerary, which doesn't have to be for just KDE bollocks, as you say. Um, so the utility and library for... Uh, doing uh, train tickets, flights, etc., and tying all the calendars and stuff. They are working on a integration with Android. So um, the likes of KD Connect and all those work quite well on the phone. But to add a notification system into the Qt build utilities. And a library, so well, which is essentially, I think, the first Java integration that they've ever done for the uh, KE5 framework, um, that will then allow them to trigger notifications on an Android phone and make it all part of the build process so it's integrated fully. So it's not a special secret thing that needs to be done in an awkward way. So they've just been doing work on that. And yeah, soon Katie and Tinnery might show up in F-Droid. I hope. I'm mean, That's speculation on my side. I don't know when it's going to
0: show up, but yeah, this is the foundation for it. I really hope they just put it on the Play Store and not in F-Droid, just to wind you up.
1: No, they won't. <laughs> well, do you know what? K Stars I think, is in the Play Store and is not in the F-Droid-fucking-store. <laughs> it's just really fucking annoying. And I think it's all down to doing, using the uh, Google backend API storage things. Yeah, I don't know what they are, because I don't have it, but...
0: Um, yeah, so that's really irritating. Come on, what kind of Egypt would not have Google Play on their phone? A smart and wise person. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and you can get $100 credit with 60 days to use it. Now, what DigitalOcean offers is an opportunity an opportunity to do whatever you want with Linux or even FreeBSD in data centers all around the world that have got really fast network access and really fast SSDs. Whether that's just a little $5 a month droplet running Ubuntu or Fedora or Debian or CentOS that you could use for running a website or a Nextcloud cloud server, all the way up to hugely powerful servers all around the world with tons of block storage or object storage attached, the possibilities really are endless. If you can do it with Linux, you can do it with DigitalOcean. They've also got some container distros, CoreOS, Fedora Atomic, and Rancho OS. But if you don't like any of those, you can just use your own custom image. And you can either start with a bare bones distro installation and then just build it up exactly how you want it. Or if you want to take a shortcut, they've got loads of one-click apps like Basic Lamp and Lemp Stacks, WordPress, Discourse, GitLab. You can pick exactly what suits your needs as well because they've got CPU-optimized droplets if all you need is raw power. And I mentioned the block storage and object storage. You just decide how much you want and attach it to your droplet. One of the really useful features is the backups. You just enable it for the droplet that you want, and then that's it. You've got your peace of mind. And if you don't want to be messing around with IP tables or even UFW, they've got cloud firewalls, which means that you can block traffic before it even reaches your droplet. I've been recommending DigitalOcean to people since long before they sponsored this show. And I've been using their services for years now, and I've always been really impressed with it. So go to do.co slash lnl and get that $100 credit, try them out, you've got nothing to lose. Go to do.co slash LNL. All right, well, uh, let's move on to ZFS and the 5.0 kernel is nearly here and ZFS is somewhat broken in it and Greg KH doesn't really seem to care very much about it because he thinks basically ZFS was not made for Linux so it can go and fuck itself. (laughs) Am I uh, paraphrasing wrong there?
1: Not really, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I I think they felt so sorry for FreeBSD having to about-face and use ZFS on Linux. They said, how can we help them out here? Let's remove (laughs) some of the features
0: on Linux, and then that might slow it down to the requisite level for them to catch up. Yeah, because there is a workaround, but it's likely that it will impact performance. Yeah, yeah. the workaround is taking the feature out (laughs) at compile time. Yeah, but does this mean that people are going to be less inclined to use ZFS on Linux? No, because they want drivers. and They want the operating system to be tested and used by
1: loads of people. So clearly it's never going to have an effect on it. Well, it depends on the hardware, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's removing SIMD instructions. So, I mean, that would be quite an important thing. So rather than having to do each individual command in user space, you're able to batch a bunch of them up, and then it can just operate all o- all on them at the same time. Or, well, not at the same time, but in a row or whatever. And uh, taking that out, you would imagine would impact it quite significantly. Um, Now, nobody seems to have any comparison stats that I've seen yet, so I don't know really what it is. I mean, it could be the fact that user space is so quick that it won't actually make too much of a difference. But um, yeah, I don't know. Not particularly good. It's shrinking the market a bit for um, snapshotting
2: file systems. Without ZFS, that leaves us butterFS if you rule out um, uh, LVM support. So, yeah, we're down to one snapshotting file system, which is not quite mature enough yet in my view. Um, So it's a bit of a shame.
1: But you can kind of see his point. We were kind of scuppered by the fact that Sun on purpose wanted to uh, deny Linux from using it and, you know, why should they overly care? I guess they don't have to overly care. I'm not really sure why they took it out. I mean, if there was a really legitimate reason or if they were really just being antagonistic
0: for the sake of it, I'm not sure. I think Richard Brown would disagree with you, Will, that it's not mature and ready. Apart from the raid stuff, it's uh, it's perfectly ready as far as OpenSUSE and Sousa are concerned. Facebook have been using it quite a bit as well. Like, There's a really good article
1: that they have on their dev uh, wiki blog, whatever it is, um they use it to a huge amount, so yeah, maybe I should try it out again on some
0: sacrificial hard drives. no stick it on the production system for the lols. <laughs> stick it on like the main build server for Ubuntu desktop. <laughs> it has been a while since I've tried it out, I must say, and I never really gave it a proper test. I don't know, is, is ButterFS really suitable for the desktop or is it more suited to servers? Well, I use it on my desktop. <laughs> do you really? I do, yeah, cuz I don't want to lose half my memory for ZFS. I don't
1: know, actually use all of my memory anyway, but I just the, the whole concept of half of it disappearing just so something can not fragment when it gets written to the disk kind of annoyed me, so I just I use it for I have uh, SSDs that are just a a DM RAID um or MD RAID, sorry, on the the main drive and then I use a external drive that is like a backup and things for vms and all that sort of stuff so
0: i've used it for years i just stick it all on one mvme drive with ext4 <laughs> and uh just don't worry about backups i just back it up every day manually to the nas and just that's it really it's so fast that i don't worry about performance and snapshots i don't know like with ubuntu and xfce what's going to break well, it's it's pretty handy if you have something like a file
1: server, especially if you have multiple users. Now, personally yourself, you probably wouldn't notice the difference. But if you're taking snapshots every, say, 15 minutes or something, and then you make a bollocks of an edit and you've totally trashed a file, well, you can just restore that one file straight away. And then, you know, you don't have to even think about it. And you have a nice cleanup script running in the background. It You know, it just churns away in a sort of a a circular loop of deleting the dailies after two days or something like that, and then keeps your weeklies for a month. And it's kind of handy to have it, and don't even have to think about a backup strategy where, you know, well, it's not a backup though. Let's be clear. It's not a backup. It's a unfuck yourself from a terrible situation (laughs) and then make sure your backups are well off site somewhere else. But yeah, I mean, it, it is pretty handy to have that. What I'd like to see on Ubuntu desktop
2: is uh, after you finish the install, then it gives you the option to take a snapshot at that point. Um, And so, yeah, no matter when you you come to the decision that you want to roll back everything and revert to a clean install, like a factory reset, you push the button and you're back there exactly as it was.
1: And you said this feature was definitely coming when, was it now? Yeah, definitely, (laughs) definitely coming. Oh, good. So, yeah,
0: 1904 for that one. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, it's been backported to the uh, the .2 LTS release. Oh, right, yeah. So we'll be getting this, uh, yeah, in very shortly. A couple of weeks, yeah.
1: <laughs> you can
0: thank me later. <laughs> on to a bit of admin, then. And thank you, everyone, for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's much appreciated. Slowly, slowly ticking up. So uh yeah, thank you for that. If you want to join people, go to com slash support and you'll see the details there. And uh yeah, if you support us to the tune of five dollars or more on Patreon, then you don't have to hear the adverts anymore. You can get an ad-free feed that you can put in your podcast player. And I'm led to believe it works quite well. If you want to get in contact, com slash contact. Now, we've got a very exciting announcement, which I think is exclusive at this point, but we'll see. Depends how long it takes me to edit this. And that is the that Camp 19 is happening. Way It's the 10th yeah. anniversary. Whey. Now, we don't have a venue confirmed yet, but we know that it's going to be in Manchester in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And it's going to be on October the 19th and 20th. So what shitty 80s metal band will you be going to see on that weekend? <laughs>
1: maybe Pantera, who knows?
0: <laughs> a player, maybe. Resurrect
1: Dimebag Daryl from the dead, just so I can avoid going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Megadeth, maybe. So yeah, put it in your calendars, everyone. October 19th and 20th, that weekend in Manchester. There basically is a venue, but it's not actually booked and paid for yet so it's then you know it's not ready to be announced but it will be soon go to Ogcamp.org or follow them on twitter i think they're just at oddcamp and i say they i feel that i am kind of part of the organization team but i just don't really do anything i just go there get drunk sleep all day turn up do a live show get drunk, sleep all day, turn up to the raffle and then go home again. Sounds like you're the rock star. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I try and behave like the rock star, but yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it should be good fun anyway. We should all go and maybe do a live late-night Linux or something (laughs) at four o'clock in the afternoon (laughs) (laughs) under the blaring lights of sobriety. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by CDN77. Go to cdn77.com. And they are a UK-based CDN provider with a standalone live streaming platform providing end-to-end video solutions. They sponsor loads of great projects like CentOS, KDE, Fedora, Gentoo and Funtu. And one of their standout clients is the European Space Agency who use CDN77 to deliver Hubble images all around the world. And this CDN is built from over 500 servers all running Debian. And most of them are physical servers, only a few of them are VMs. Everything is developed in-house by CDN77. They make their own DDoS protection, and through the optimizations that they've done, they can push 80 gigabits per second of live streaming through just one machine. They've got 30 points of presence in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia, with daily peaks regularly exceeding 4 terabits per second. They're really big on innovation as well. They were the first CDN to implement features like HTTP2 and broccoli compression. But most importantly, it's really easy to use. I hosted an episode of the JRS podcast on there, and it was really easy to put the file on there and link to it. And I've had no complaints about the speed from people downloading it all over the world. They've recently launched some new monthly plans with the best value on the market from $9.99 per terabytes as a global flat rate. And they've also got a pay-as-you-go option with no commitments and full transparency. They've got a 14-day trial with no credit card needed, so go to cdn77.com and sign up there. And once you've done your free trial and you're ready to go for the paid option, then mention Late Night Linux to the sales or tech support team and you get an extra first payment bonus. So, for example, if you topped up $1,000, you'd get an extra 400 on top of that. So go to cdn77.com, sign up, and start delivering new content. Right, so this argument between me and Phelan then. So. Over the last couple of weeks, it's been a bit of a shit time for MongoDB. First of all, Amazon launched their MongoDB compatible document DB, which is just a complete fucking ripoff of it, which is all hosted and managed and excellent in terms of features and performance and all the rest of it, and just pisses all over MongoDB, basically, Um, and then more recently mongodb has been removed from major distros from debian and also from uh, red hat and fedora i should have asked you this off air will and you may not know the answer but does this mean it being removed from debian will mean it's removed from ubuntu winpress didn't seem to know exactly no i don't know i'm afraid Yeah, because there are some things in Ubuntu that don't come from Debian, so it's hard to say. But either way, it doesn't look good for MongoDB at this point. And Felim and I were talking about the AWS document DB thing. And that's when we got into a debate about cloud versus on-premises. And so I thought we'd bring that debate on air. And surprisingly, Felim, you think that using services like AWS and Google Cloud and Azure and stuff are not a good idea And you think that it's all vendor lock-in and you should be running on-premises.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's close to uh, accurate. I mean, I don't think the concept of using a server in a remote data center is a problem, as long as you do it with a certain amount of thought of, you know, what services you put there and where you put your data. And the fact that you can then use things like LibCloud or whatever to stop yourself becoming, uh, you know, stop all your internal scripts, etc., being tied to one specific API for one provider. Um, I think the problem is when you start to use a system like that, if you don't adapt to what their, you know, their, their positives and negatives are and customized to each of those, then you are wasting your time because you're not getting the benefits of it. So then, you, you know, if you're unable to take a benefit and get the, extra performance out by customizing to that particular thing, then you might as well have not bothered in the first place. So I I think it's, you find, I think you would find a lot of companies when they do it, they go, let's use AWS or they're big and they're cheap for what we think we're doing. And then down the road, it turns out that maybe it wasn't quite as cheap as they thought it was. And their way that they are using their data has changed. And now they're getting stung for transfer rates or processing rates because they picked the wrong thing. And I think in the long run, if you happen to do the same thing over and over, like a lot of companies do, you're always better to have it on-premises because Shocker, even though the likes Amazon are using the economy of scale factor, they're still buying servers, putting them in a rack and then using them. So, you know, you can do that yourself just as cheap as they can, if not closer, because they're trying to make a profit on top of it as
0: well. But what about scaling your infrastructure? Isn't that the whole point of the cloud that you can use like automated scaling and predictive scaling even with AWS, where you don't necessarily, you know, say you are, I don't know, an e-commerce site or whatever that's, uh, I I don't know, sells like flowers or whatever. On certain days, like Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, you're going to have just massive surges in traffic. This is a bit of a shit example, but you get what I mean. And you can have um, either sort of reactive scaling or even preemptive scaling using AI and stuff, which Amazon announced fairly recently. And you just cannot do that on-premises. Sure. But then uh, that's exactly my point. You're
1: now tied into that system to the point where you're never going to be able to change. At which point that is a dead-end evolutionary step for you, because in order to change out of that system, it's just going to be impossible. And then you become dependent on a thing that you don't know. It's a black box. And if at any point, you need to, you know, change the way it's working because for whatever choice you make, there's a great story out there where there's a machine learning system that they couldn't correct because it had just decided that, that no, you're talking shite humans, I'm going to do it this way. And, you know, what do you do at that point where you've got a a dependent black box technology that you're then stuck with we're back right at the early 90s where you know Microsoft is starting to become dominant and we're all like walking into a monopoly essentially
0: again yes but is aws ever really going to go away probably not at this point if it does then so many websites would just be just totally fucked wouldn't they and also i i do see your argument that If you're not using the features that lock you in, then why are you bothering? But you can, if you architect your system in the correct way, make it portable, can't you? I mean, you know way more about this than I do, but surely you can take advantage of the scaling, for example, but still be able to port all of that off onto another cloud service or even on-premises. Yeah, but you, now you're getting to the point where they're starting to do things like serverless as
1: well where you're going to have a you know function that essentially sits in the cloud and while that might be okay for going, what if they're modifying the runtime that they're using for whatever piece of code, maybe it's JavaScript or Python or whatever, you're going to have to keep track of that stuff. So that's an extra thing that you're going to have to keep track of and all the subtleties of how code interacts, that's going to get lost unless you you know you're using that particular version with that particular setup and, you know, Google does it differently. And then there's all going to be all the extra little nuances that come with those things. It's used like a magic sort of, Oh, we've put it in the cloud and now it's all fine and working well, but nothing is ever that simple, I think. Um and you know, so Amazon has now launched its document DB unless Google launches the exact same document DB and, Azure does exactly the same thing. It's not going to be the same version levels, so your API is not going to be technically compatible. They might be close, and you might get away with it, but you know, half the time is a bug will crop up because two things that were supposed to be exactly the same actually
0: turned out they weren't because it didn't parse all the string lengths properly or something daft like that. Well, the Document DB is compatible with that older MongoDB API. So as long as they maintain that compatibility... But that still requires that all the providers
1: would have that exact version that Amazon has. Otherwise, there will be differences. You know, how often do you see bug reports that is in Debian, that is in Ubuntu, but isn't in... Uh, say Fedora, and they're all using the same technical version of the same software because they all got released relatively similar, but somebody else applied
0: a patch that they didn't. How often do you see bug reports? Not very often, eh, Graham?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a rare thing of beauty. (laughs) Yeah,
0: we look forward to its return. I I do take the points that you're making, but I can't help but feel that you are biased because your job depends on people running on-premises, doesn't it? Well, or, I don't know. Do you, do you have enough experience of the cloud to pivot that way if necessary? Well, that's the funny thing. I mean, whether I have to administer a server via SSH in Amazon's data center or
1: the shop down the road or somewhere on the other side of the world in a local office, it doesn't overly matter. It's just really the tools and the APIs that you're using to build stuff on top of that. So, I mean, it doesn't overly affect me per se, but I think we also from the other side of things is there's going to be a sort of devaluing of um sort of generic admin skills and hardware skills and you might say well you know nobody needs to maintain their car anymore but if your business is based on a fleet of cars you better have a mechanic because you don't want to be dependent on the local garage having only one mechanic and he's not available
2: the approach that canonical have taken with this is that when you're operating at that sort of scale it's more or less impossible to administer uh, you know all of these separate servers um, by hand, and so automation of the the setup of the cloud is the way to go. And so they've put in place you know, services that. You can deploy whatever setup is you can you can define your setup and then deploy it in any way you like, either on premises or to any of the public clouds surely that 's the way that things are going to go in the future that um, devops and and ops specifically will become more about um, designing and architecting the solutions to use the right um, the right agnostic apis which can then push your your system out to any one of the public clouds or your own private internal system. Um, and when you talk about uh, on-prem, do you, do you think of them in in terms
1: of a cloud or is it more just like one or two servers? Are we, how do you think about it? Well, I mean, I think you can have your own internal cloud as much as, you know, they're virtual machines on servers. I mean, I, that's what annoys me about the cloud whole idea is the fact that it makes it sound better than it really is when serverless computing has servers too they're just functions that are running in a runtime, and that's where it's like they're trying to abstract that away for whatever reason to the point where there's going to be only a very small subset of people who are ever going to get to touch those type of systems and I think that we do ourselves a disservice by taking that away now I, I absolutely believe automation is a way to do things like salt stack etc I mean that's the way to go because you know nobody wants to rebuild the machine for the 50th time in a row but Equally taking away certain levels of skill that I think are important, like tuning applications, interacting with the hardware. I think they're important things because if you build a system that's like a one size fits all where you might have eight options of types of hardware, that doesn't fit everybody's type of setup. Now, granted, most small, medium enterprises, they will have, you know, a database and a website. And yes, that would probably fit them for a lot of stuff. But if you, if you scale, I don't think the needs of your business necessarily are the needs of their business.
2: So have we reached the point now where we're worried about losing our traditional skills and that uh, in the future, nobody will remember how to make a barrel? (laughs) Well,
1: I challenge one of you to configure uh, XConfig manually. I certainly don't know how to do that. And we've automated that away. Now, I'm not saying I want to configure that and run the risk of blowing my monitor up as I was the scare story that could happen. But equally, I think, you know, getting away from the low-level hard drive setups, you know, optimize for your DB, all these things, I just, I think it's dangerous. And I think we should think about it now before it's far too late. I was a sysadmin, my dad was a sysadmin, and his dad before him.
0: <laughs> I mean, it is a siege of misery of a job sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> Surely, someone must be administering those servers in Amazon's data centers. Yeah, surely
1: are. But I mean, realistically speaking, if you get down to you know three providers, that's not exactly an awful lot of people that are going to be interacting with that. And I think that's where half of our innovation comes from: is the fact that we have a varied architecture and types of. Setups in IT that, you know, this is where the new ideas come from. You know, MongoDB came out the fact that people trying to store documents in a SQL database was driving them nuts. I mean, if you have abstracted all that away to Magic
0: Cloud DB, then there's only going to be five guys working on that. Yeah, but don't forget about people like DigitalOcean. I mean, I know they sponsor the show, but they have grown massively over the last few years and they've basically come from nowhere. And okay, they're not offering the same thing as Amazon, but they're offering sort of a much more um well a sort of less tied in version so there are providers like them as well yeah and, and
1: i mean that that's that's not my problem i think that that is fine cuz then you are using resources like a tool whereas the uh, well insidious is probably a slightly over dramatic word for it but the slightly insidious way that the likes of amazon would work is the fact that they have such a good api that You'd almost be a fool not to use all the features of it, in which case, yeah, that is now a proprietary system that you're tied into. And even the kernel versions that they use and the the OS that's underlying it, if you're using theirs, that's not something you can easily get out yourself and
2: run on your own hardware. I think ultimately the question of on-prem or versus cloud... It's going to become cyclical where things move on-prem, uh, what well, were on-prem, they moved out to the cloud, there's going to be a big outage of the internet one day and everyone's going to decide that it was a terrible idea. They'll move them back in-house and then a few years will pass and they'll forget why they did that and then they'll move them out again and, and it will continue and everybody will have jobs forever more.
1: <laughs> <Which> you can <laughs> only do that so many times before nobody has the skills to do it in-house and then we're all sitting around going, Oh, I know. Why don't we, you know, build a system that could control everything to a series of binaries and be horribly complicated and then off we go on that again.
3: Maybe. I mean, it's funny because thin client computing seemed like it had had its day. And effectively that's what so much of uh, modern cloud-based interfaces are, the way that we use them. So, but I, you know, I, I think I have to agree with Joe and I think will it's difficult if the, the cloud cat is out of the bag, um, and people just need to make considered risk assessment of, of what benefits they get from. And, and, you know, that's something quantitative that they can work out, compare the advantages of having the elasticity of the cloud versus having something on-prem. And I think ideally both. And if that forces software to change and that, that change can only happen in open source, I think, especially with multi-vendor, big cloud dominant vendors, then. Or we'll all be the better for it because I can't see it going back to on-prem generally in the future. Isn't that
0: the idea of hybrid cloud that IBM were going on about when they bought Red Hat? That you don't just put all your eggs in one basket. You have various cloud providers and some on-prem and that all works together to give you redundancy. So you're not customizing it to the providers that you
1: need technically that way then? I suppose not, yeah. I mean, it's fine if it's a web server, you know, you need a fleet of a 100 web servers and let's spread them evenly amongst the four providers. But if it's more complicated than that, I think you need to customise.
3: Hmm. I mean, without this turning into like a publicity campaign for all our employers, I mean, this is close to what Juju does, Canonical's Juju. and, And it's working towards being able to have your data on one cloud provider and your apps running on another and then basically being able to move as at will between those cloud providers depending on costs and other limitations. And I could see other solutions like that happening. If it beca- if the cost benefit of having a cloud versus on-prem is so great, but the lock-in is too scary a prospect, then I think other products will fill the gap. It's funny that not once have we even considered the software freedom aspect
0: of it. And that although you're running Linux and mostly free software, on top of their infrastructure of amazon or whatever if you're running on-prem then you are completely in control of the entire stack from top to bottom does that factor in at all well i think that was one of my points as
1: well as the fact that you know you are diverging from the the projects themselves and while amazon's document db is as good as 3.6 it doesn't mean that it's not going to be all the other things that they've got going on, like their, uh, their data storage lens and how they integrate it and their tools. Like, I'm not sure their web management consoles are going to be as equally as free, you know? So, you know, make it take the the great bonus they've done. I mean, it's good software. I'm not knocking that and I can see how useful it is. And it's like one of those things that once you start using
0: it, I think that's when you find it hard to get back from that position. Which is why you don't have the Play Store and have never installed it on your phone.
1: Well, yeah, and I hear you bad-mouthing me on user error there. You're saying that you don't know how I can do it, <laughs> but I really don't feel like I'm at a loss with what I use on my phone. I actually really enjoy using my phone, and all of the, the software I get is open source. I know I'm not dependent if it comes to it. I had a GPS tracking piece of software that I liked. It was quite handy where I, you know, I could send, I'm coming meet you up there now, I'm gonna activate it and it'll send a ping to a little crappy web map that I wrote. And that piece of software died to death and didn't work with the version when I got the 3T. So I my brother was handy enough with Java that I said, here, make that fucking work, will you? Because I don't like touching Java, so he made it work with it. And it was it works now. And it yeah, I'm trying to get him to publish it back to f but yeah you no, know, I wasn't I was dependent on that piece of software. Well not really, but that was a good piece of software. I liked using it and it died. So we resurrected it. Now, if your business is making money on that, you know, that's a not the same example, obviously, but if you're dependent on a piece of software and then they decide to change tack and uh, you're fucked and the version of Photoshop that you now use is well unsupported or Cubase that you have on an ancient Mac is no longer supported and neither is the OS. What the fuck do you do? Like, cement that machine in a cupboard somewhere and then never touch it and hope it never fucking breaks.
0: Yeah, unplug the network cable and cross your fingers. Don't be dependent.
3: Yeah, but there are levels of dependency and what you were just reminding me of like flat earthers are quite happy as well and they feel very content with their you know, oh, tink, tinkering around.
1: You honestly
0: compare me to a flat
1: <laughs> I don't like you <laughs> anymore.
0: <laughs> well, as you know, there are flat earthers all around the globe. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Ah oh, wankers. Uh, well, I don't think we've come to a great conclusion as usual, but um, I think that the reality is businesses are just going to continue to use the cloud because it just makes more economic sense. And much like with politics, they don't necessarily think very long-term. They think in the short term, this makes sense. You know, over the next eight quarters or whatever, or even longer than that, it makes financial sense. And then they just assume that aws will be around forever and and so yeah it's, it's not a problem but I, I do see your argument and i think eggs and baskets spring to mind here and a bit of both seems like the sensible way forward be cautious <laughs> yeah. right well i suppose that'll do it for this episode then we'll be back in two weeks with hopefully a full house and we have no clue what we're going to talk about but uh, we'll work that out off air until then i've been joe I've been Phelan I've been Graham and I've been Will See you later